John 14, verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you, be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you, he says, as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Chapter 14, verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? And Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you while I was still with you. But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before, it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise up, let us go from here. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So, John 14. Children, you're dismissed for Children's Church. Uh, We are in the 14th chapter. Contextually, this is Thursday night. The public ministry of Jesus is over. It is Thursday night. The Passover season has begun. A time of celebrating God's deliverance and and redemption from the tyranny of slavery under Pharaoh, the Egyptian king. Remember, the the final plague was sent, God sent to the land of Egypt was the death of the firstborn son, and those who did not take shelter under the blood of the substitutionary lamb lost every firstborn son. God told Moses, put the blood of a lamb over the door frames, and the next morning when the angel of death would pass over, and that next morning either was a dead lamb in your home or a dead son. Jesus is celebrating that feast with them. It's Thursday night. Jesus gathered these 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, 12 at this time in chapter 13 when it begins, um, together... To love them, John tells us, to, to, to instruct them as he is getting ready for his departure. This messianic community has gathered together in the upper room. And he is going to commission these 11 men. Judas is, will, will, will leave and do what the scripture says he would do. But these 11 men Jesus gathers around and going to give instructions and send them out into the world. These 11 men will take the gospel and declare it and demonstrate on this worldwide mission in participating of the church of Christ. 
The one that Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13, verse 1, we see it was the feast of the Passover that Jesus knew his hour had come, pointing to his death on the cross. That's the hour he is talking about. And that his, his ascension, his returning back to God was also is eminent as well. The hour has come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, verse 1, chapter 13, he loved them to the end, to the uttermost. It was that, during that supper that the devil put into the heart of Judas to betray him. But Jesus, verse 3 of chapter 13, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that had come from God and going back to God. Okay, so the whole upper room discourse is this whole idea that I'm leaving, I am going, I, I am going away from you. I have served you, I have loved you, I have prepared for you, my 12, and soon now I am leaving. And you can only imagine, <laughs> this wasn't the way it's supposed to end. Chapter 13, verse 33, I'm going away, you cannot come. Peter, chapter 13, verse 36, where are you going? I'm going, you can't follow me. Chapter 14, verse 12, I'm going to the Father. Chapter 14, 28, I keep saying to you, I'm going away and you cannot come. You see this, this, this confusion, it's not the way it's supposed to end, this, this angst, this, this idea of uh, what's happening here. So Jesus tells him, we saw last week, in the midst of this, this confusion, in the midst of all this going on in chapter 14, verse 1, believe in me, believe in God, believe also in me. Last week we said that they need to trust him in their fears and to trust them, and trust him in their future, need to trust him, Jesus, in their wanderings, the way, the truth, and the life, and to trust him in their Witnessing that, that there would be a time, if you look at chapter 14, uh, in the closing verses of last week, chapter 12, uh, 13, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. I'm leaving, you will do the works, and the works he's pointing to, he says, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it that the Father may glorify the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So we concluded last week saying the work that Jesus did, he wasn't talking about the particular miracles. What he was talking about was the work of showing forth the glory of the Father and of the Son and who he is as the Christ, the Messiah, and believing on him, you'll have life in his name. It's the work that all of us as Christians take up as we live on mission, declaring and demonstrating the gospel. He said, how are you going to do that? Verse 13, ask it in my name. Ask that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Ask in my name and I will do it. Notice the context. It's not any old crazy thing you want to ask God and just tack on in Jesus' name. You know, you ever have those kind of people? Do this, do that. I want this, I want that. In Jesus' name, I got you. Now you have to do it. That's paganism. That's not Christianity. Whatever you ask is tied to the glory of the Father, of the Son. 1 John 5, if you ask anything according to His will, He hears you. We're going to talk about this some more, but let me just say this. When Jesus says, ask in my name, He means the character, the character of Christ, consistent with His purpose, His personhood, His nature, and His will. For His fame, His glory, not yours. You put every request around that, that filter that through that prayer, you'll get your answer. My name, my character, my fame, consistent with my purposes. 
Ask that in my name, and I will do it. So, as we jump into chapter 14, verse 15, I want you to understand that the context. I'm leaving, I'm going, I'm no longer present. I will be no longer present with you physically to care for you, to provide for you, to trust you, but trust my promises. And also, as we will see today, fourth, four headings. Let me get that for you. Put it right up if you're taking notes. Number one, the love for God. Number two, we're going to see the gift of God. Number three, the union in God, that relationship. And finally, the peace with God. That's where we're headed this morning. Now, under number one, the first heading, the love for God, I use the term for God rather than the love of God for a reason, for a purpose. Both are true. God loves us. But as we get into the text and we're dealing with, if you love me, obey me. If you love me, follow my commands. If you love me, do as I tell you to do. I want to put the context out there so that we can understand what Jesus is saying. This is the few hours before he is going to be brutally murdered. Not only will he endure the excruciating pain of the physical pain of dying on a Roman cross, the worst possible execution you could go under, but he will also endure taking our wrath in our place as the Father pours out our judgment upon him and he cries out, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Which we could never understand. But he's doing that in a few hours. Rather than like, I don't want to talk to anybody right now. I just want to go in a, in a corner somewhere and just pray and wait for this to be over because that's what I would have done. He gathers his 11, it says in chapter 13, verse 1, to love them, to care for them, to instruct them, to, to be concerned about their worries and their troubles so that they would not worry and be troubled and have fear. He's loving them with no respect to what he's ready to go through. That's love. It's the love that God has for us. Love, he says in John 13, 1 again, to the utmost, to the end. I would have just said, I'll see you guys on the other end. I'm preparing for what's coming in a couple of hours. Now, in your margin, if you write in your Bibles, uh, and I do, uh, I want you to write this cross-reference in John chapter 15, 14, verse 15. Write 1 John 4.19. Remember that verse, 1 John 4.19, keeping this in context, obedience and commandments and love. 1 John 4.19 is what it says. We love, talking about our love for God, we love God because, why? He first loved us. We love God because he first loved us. That is extremely important, detrimental in understanding when talking about obeying the commands and the words of Christ. It is a response to his already love for us. Very important. He had already demonstrated his love. He humbly got on his, his, his knees and washed their dirty feet. He commanded them to love one another. And now he's turned around and he's talking about their love for him. And the connection between the love for Christ and obeying Christ is something John deals with in his passages. Not just here, but throughout this book in 1 John and in John. So here's just a few. Look at 14 verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments, verse 21, and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will what? Keep my word. 
Verse 24 in the negative, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Now, he uses different words. Your commandments, commandments, keeps my word, my teaching some of your, your Bibles might have. And he's not simply talking about the moral commands, teachings of Jesus. There's not a, really a lot of them in John, actually, much more in Matthew and, and some of the other synoptic gospels. He's talking about the moral commands, but he's also talking about the love we have for each other. The, 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 the obedience to Christ, Jesus will say, if you want to do the work, what's the work, what's the work we're supposed to do? What does Jesus say? Believe on me. So believe me, trust me, obey, walk, follow my commands, follow my teaching. In other words, it's the whole life that we live, or Christ living in us, that we are to walk in obedience to him. Now listen very carefully. Loving Jesus is not the same, or to simply say it's the same as keeping his commandments. It precedes it. Loving Jesus, not the same as keeping his commandments, it precedes it. So obeying the words and commands of Jesus is the result of loving him and not the same as loving him. Follow me? It's an indicator of loving Jesus. Now, whenever we talk about obedience, there's a slippery slope. On one side, you have what's called antinomianism. Anti, obviously, against nomos, meaning law. There are those who teach, uh, and it's a false teaching, on this hyper-grace that, uh, you know, it's grace, 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 and that's awesome. But what happens is they neglect, they neglect or they overemphasize it to the point of they exclude vital teaching of Scripture that has to do with repentance and confession of sin. So we're not under the law in a way to be right with God. That, I get that. But believers are still responsible to confess and forsake sin. Antinomianism is one slippery slope. The other side is, of course, legalism. See, antinomianism, as soon as you hear obey, oh, that's legalism. And then legalists hear, oh, when you have too much grace, oh, you know what, you've got to obey. If I keep obeying, if I keep doing what I'm supposed to do, I go to church, I give, I do all that stuff, you know what, God will love me, and as long as I keep doing it, he keeps loving me. That's legalism. That's legalism. If I obey then God loves me. That's a problem. I don't need to obey. I don't follow any commands of God because I'm not on the law. That's a problem. So legalism is a balance, right? Legalism is I obey, God loves and accepts me. Antinomianism is I don't have to obey. It's not about obedience. It's only about grace. And therefore, you know what? I'll do whatever I want. As soon as you bring up grace, as soon as you bring up law, it's, it's legalism. What's the balance? I'm glad you asked. He first loved us. He first loved us. His love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his forgiveness, his acceptance of me purely by grace through the shed blood of Christ on the cross, forgiving me of my sin, rising from the dead, all that he's done and given me now in response to that, my love for him because he already loved me, is to respond in obedience. Is to do as he says I ought to do. The motivation then is not law, it's love, but it's our, 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 our motive is, is, and what we do is the fruit, it's not the root. The root is love and grace and mercy. The fruit of it is what? Listening to Jesus. He says, do this, I do this. He says, don't do that, I don't do that. Not to gain his love, but because he loves me. There's a big difference between the two. And Luke, if you read Luke 6, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord? 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? You keep calling me that, but you're not listening. Everyone who comes to me says and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house, dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock, and when a flood arose, his stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, hear my word but doesn't do them, is like a man who built a house on the ground without foundation. When the streams broke against it, immediately it fell, and ruin of that house was great. Now, we'll see in context here. I am not saying, and I want to be really clear, that we can do this on our own. Walk with Jesus, obey Jesus' command, listen to Jesus' word, do as he tells us on our own. Nor am I saying, listen carefully, nor am I saying getting into a right relationship with God is by our obedience. It's a matter of new birth. It's a matter of Christ coming to us and changing us from the inside. It's a matter of our disposition. I was talking to somebody before the service, talking about obedience, that I don't obey every single moment. I'm like, welcome to the crowd. No one does. But there was a time in which I obeyed myself and the world and did all I wanted to do. And there was a time when God opened my heart to see the glory of Christ, the love of Christ in the gospel, and I changed directions. Now I want to obey God and love him. Perfectly? No. But there's been a change. That's new birth. That's regeneration. And if you don't love God and there's no love of God in your heart, it's because there hasn't been a work of regeneration in your life. Regeneration proves itself by obedience. Not perfect. It's because he first loved us and he has given us his spirits. So our ability to, to you know, and, and our our ability and our need to obey is something we don't bring to the table because we're dead in our sins. It's the work of grace, an expression of the new nature that he has given us that's transforming work that God has done in our life. And therefore, we go from wanting darkness, loving darkness, John 3, to loving God and wanting to walk in the light. Love, biblical love, flows out of the new birth expressing itself by loving God, obeying the commands of Christ. For by grace you've been saved, we love that verse. By grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, or the gift of God, not of works, don't boast. For we were his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So love born out of a new birth, that God first loved us, is the response we respond in loving him. Now, Alexander McLaren, passed away a long time ago, I believe, said this, and I think this is good. He said, the principle that underlies, underlines these words, if you love me or obey me, the principle that underlines these words then is that love is the foundation of obedience and obedience is the sure outcome and result of love we all know that love which is real we know the love that's real and not simply selfishness and passion with a mask on for that kind of love he says delights most chiefly in knowing and conforming to the will of the beloved how do you know you love someone you do what is pleasing to them and there is nothing sweeter, he says, than to be commanded by the dear voice and to obey for dear love's sake. It's the love, end quote. The love of the gospel, the love of Jesus. I love you. I died for you. I forgive you. I accept you. 
believe on me, our response then is to love the beloved, to hear that voice. We see that pattern in Scripture. Look down with me in chapter 14 again, verse 31. Let's, one of the last verse. I do, Jesus says, as the Father commanded me. I do what the Father says. So that the world may know that I love the Father. <laughs> Jesus is our pattern, right? See, legalism follows and, command, and follows the commands out of fear, out of work, out of trying. Antinosmanism doesn't do it because out of rebellion. But the gospel is love. It's the motive. All that Christ has done. Jesus is the pattern. 1 John 5, again, for this is the love for God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Is God's commands burdensome to you? Some people hear the word obey, and they're like, I hate that word. Right? That's why like, I left home when I was 12 and joined the circus. I just, I don't like obey. Well, obedience is a wonderful word when you have the right father. When, when you have the right dad. It depends on your dad, really. One who loves and cares for you, obedience is not a duty, it's a delight. If you have a problem obeying God, the problem may lie in knowing him. Knowing the gospel, pressing in the truth of his love for you in the gospel. That may be the problem. Honestly, obedience, if you don't like the word, really may not be the problem. The problem may be your understanding of love. Knowing all that the Christ has done for you and responding out of the, out of the glory and the beauty of the gospel. Preach the gospel to ourselves. And when we do, we'll, love, we'll grow in love, we'll grow in joy, and we'll do what God commands us to do, not as a burden, not as a law, but out of a delight for the one who loves me eternally, forever. Again, it, it, it's an eternal love. It, it's, it's not severe, it's satisfying if you've been born anew. If you've been born anew. It's about the new birth, and which brings us to the gift of God. Look at, look at verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another. He'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him though, for he dwells with you and will be with you. Now, John has already introduced us to the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1. At Jesus' baptism, John chapter 3, about new birth with Nicodemus, John chapter 4, about worship, John chapter 6, Jesus says it is the Spirit that gives life, John chapter 7, at the Feast of the Tabernacle and Booths, Jesus says, out of the heart will flow rivers of living water, saying that's what will happen when the Spirit comes. But in John 14 and John 14 and 16, we are going to have a detailed teaching from the lips of Jesus about who the Holy Spirit is, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I will tell you, as I mentioned last week, about who God is as one God in three persons, the Trinity. We're going to learn a lot about that over the next few weeks. Notice first he says, another helper. That word another, um, there, there are two words for the word another in the original language. The first one is heteron, which means another of a different kind. I will give you another car, maybe a different brand, a different name, or something of that nature. The other word for another is the word alos, which means another of the exact same kind. I'm going to give you another car, exactly what you lost. That's the word here. 
Jesus saying, I'm giving you another helper, one who is deity, one who is of the nature and essence of God. He will be just like me and he will come and he will be your helper. Now, a lot of Bibles translate the word helper in different ways. Maybe if you're a King James person, I think it's, it's comforter. Maybe you heard comforter. The encourager will come. Um, what are some of the other words? The counselor. The helper, depending on your translation. The reason is, it's a hard word in the original language to translate to the English to really grasp the meaning of it. Literally means someone who will come alongside you. That's where you get the word helper. I I don't like the word helper and comforter that much. Um, The word helper makes it sound like I'm doing what I want to do and your job, Lord, is to help me. Like, no. Or comforter just reminds me of my comforter. I don't know, like by the warm fire, I'm just going to wrap it around, do nothing, and just put my feet up. But So it, it's really not that. I think, and you could disagree, that's okay. I think advocate is a good word because the word comforter, the word advocate, the word helper has legal overtones to it. It's someone who, who comes alongside of you, who is for you and by you and courageously speaks truth to someone. They're a substitute, they're a representative. Think of a defense attorney or even a prosecutor on your case. Someone who comes along, someone who is powerless and deals with the powers to be on your behalf. That's the advocate. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm leaving the helper, just like me, is going to come. He will be the advocate, he will be the encourager, he will be come alongside and strengthening you because I will not be here. But it is going to be so beautiful. It says, number one, he will dwell with us. And number and look at verse, at verse 18. We're going to jump right down to verse 18. It says, well, at the end of verse 17, he dwells with you, will be in you, I will not leave you. You see that? The very presence of the Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ. We don't have, you know, Jesus is in my heart, we tell our kids. Well, yes and no. I mean, it's not like little Jesuses are walking around in there. The presence of the Holy Spirit, we could say Jesus lives in you. He will be in you. He will dwell within you. I will send him and he'll be a helper. I won't be here any longer. Do you see that? Now one of the things we'll notice, and we'll just mention this and we'll move on, is when we get to chapter 15 and 16, the Holy Spirit, Jesus will say he. He'll use a personal pronoun. The spirit, the word spirit is neuter, no male or female, but then Jesus will say he will guide you. He will show you. And what Jesus is pointing to, which we will see, is he is the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He takes on the masculine form to show us that he is distinct, but yet one. That's what the Trinity is. He's not a force, but co-equal with God, distinct in persons. He's another, just like Jesus, a divine being living with them and in them. Okay, got that? Pastor named by Reuben Torrey passed away. He's a, he was a superintendent of Moody Bible. He said this, talking about force and, and a person, the difference between the two. He says this, The concept of the Holy Spirit as a divine influence or power that we are somehow to get hold of and use leads to self-exaltation and self-sufficiency. But if we could grasp, once grasp the thought that the Holy Spirit is a divine person of infinite majesty, glory, and holiness, and power, who in marvelous condescension came down 
into our hearts to make his abode there and take possession of our lives and make use of them, it will put us in the dust and keep us in the dust, humble us. I can think of no thought more humbling or more overwhelming, he writes, than the thought that the divine majesty person, excuse me, that the thought that the person of divine majesty and glory dwells in my heart and is ready to use even me. God living in you. How long? How, how, long will, how long will this be, Lord? He will be with you what? Forever. You see that? Verse uh, 17, even the spirit, no, verse 16, give you another helper to be with you forever. 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 Got that? He will be with you forever. Not like, oh, well, as long as you do what you're supposed to do. He will be with you forever. And he will not only be with the one who is scared, like the disciples who are afraid, who are lonely, who are hurting, who are disillusioned. He will not only be with them, that's true. But he's in the one, it says, verse 16. I will be in you. God is in the one who is lonely. God is in the one who is fearful. God is in the one who is troubled. Take heart of that. Not standing alongside you only. He's in you. He's in you. And he is what it says here, the spirit of truth. I love that. Jesus just said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You remember earlier? And now he says, the spirit of truth. When the spirit opens our hearts and opens our minds and awakens our darkened souls, listen, he gives the palate of our hearts a new and glorious desire. The love of God will change. Our hearts will be changed by the love of God. Peter would say, taste, see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm leaving, I'm going, the helper will come. He's the, he's the member of the Trinity. He will, he's the spirit of truth. He will guide you into all truth. He will dwell within you. Look down at verse 25. These things I've spoken to you, I'm with you. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. First, historically, in the moment, he's going to, he's going to remind and teach, illuminate the apostles so they can write this. They can write this. In fact, if you remember in John 2, Jesus is talking about his body, He's talking about the temple, destroyed his temple, in three days I'll raise it up. And they're like, yo, man, it took 80 years. you got to be kidding. Jesus was talking about his body. It says after the resurrection, they said, oh, we get that now. We see that throughout John. John was like, they won't get it, but when they rise from the dead, they'll get it. Well, that's what he's saying. I'll bring back to remembrance. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll deal with truth. He'll show you truth. He will reveal to you the things I've already told you, and you'll understand what I'm talking about because you're not getting it all right now. If you have a margin, again, write in your Bibles John 16, 14, right there. John 16, 14, let me read it to you. He, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, will come. He will glorify me. Jesus said this. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. First thing you need to know about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is he will take the words of Christ and reveal the beauty and majesty and glory of Christ. So when you see someone promoting and teaching about the Holy Spirit, and you're listening for an hour, 
and it's not about the glory and beauty of the gospel, shut the TV off and count him off. Because the Spirit is teaching the word of Christ for the glory of Christ and the beauty of Christ and the gospel. That's the primary function of the Holy Spirit. Not to make you look good dancing around and not make you look good and trying to promote yourself. It's promoting Jesus. He's the primary and particular focus in the gospel, in the scripture, and he will, as we'll see, the Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son because the Father and the Son send the Spirit and he will be pointing to Christ. Jesus is the foundation, the base, the center of Scripture and the purpose in the world. That is why the world rejects Jesus, rejects his Spirit, rejects our message if not for the new birth. We see the Trinity at work. Verse 26 again. The Helper, the Holy Spirit... Whom the Father, Father, Holy Spirit, will send what? In my name. There's God. Three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Number three, look at the union. Look at the work of the Spirit. What do we, what do orphans need? Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. (laughs) What do orphans need? They need dads and moms, that's what they need. They need protection and provision and care and love. That's what they need. They need... Jesus, and, 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 and they must be, they, I can only imagine, they must be sensing like, all right, we hear you talking about the Spirit, it's all good, but what about you? Where are you going to be? I'm not going to leave you, he says, as orphans. I will, I will come to you. In a little while, verse 19, the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I will live. I, uh, the, the tomb will be empty, I will live, and you will live also. I live, you live. Empty tomb means you're empty tomb. That's what he's saying. The Spirit's going to come. I won't leave you as orphans. I will be with you. I will come to you. See that? I will come to you. Now, commentators look at this and say, okay, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Does he mean, and then he says, yet in a little while, you notice that the world will not see me, but you will see me because I live. Is he talking about I will come to you after... Sunday, death on Friday, rose on Sunday. I will, you will see me in my post-resurrection. I will come to you. I'm not going to leave his offering. You'll see me again. Possibly. But I think contextually, I think what, what Jesus is saying is pointing not to, only to that, but beyond that. Because when the spirit of truth will come and be in you and dwell within you, he says, then I will come to you as well. There is that union that the spirit of God brings dwelling within us of union with Christ. And when the Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts, we see the beauty and glory of Christ. So we can say, Christ is with us. Christ is with us. His presence is in me. The Spirit of God is revealed to me, the glory and beauty of Christ. He is with me. I I will be with you. In verse 20 it says, In that day you will know you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Notice that? See, it is the work of the Spirit that brings us into union with the Father and the Son. What's so cool about that verse, look what it says. I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. He's telling his disciples there will be a such union and unity and love for us, children of God, through the Spirit of God, that the only analogy that I could possibly show you 
is the union with me and the Father. Now, obviously, they're different, right? The union that the Father has with the Son is not the same as the Father and Son have with us. We're sinners and not eternal. But Jesus is saying it's that kind of unity. It's that kind of union that the Father and the Son, one God, three persons, is in such union together that the only way I can really show you what that really means is look at the union we have with each other. That's the union of God. That's, that's the Spirit of God in you, in the communion and unity and, and fellowship with God. I mean, let that be an encouragement to you this morning. Let that, let that teach you in the days of trouble, in the days of hurt, in the days of fear, in the days of, of worry, that I am in such union with my God that the analogy of the Father and the Son is what Jesus used. Very important. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments, right, you and me, I and you, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas like, oh Lord, how are you going to manifest yourself just to us and not the world? The world hates you, the world rejects you, the world wants nothing with your spirit. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Circle the word home. There's only one other place in all the New Testament where that word is used. Circle home. The only other place. You know where it is? Right in the same chapter, verse 2. My father's house, there are many homes, rooms, Dwelling places. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to pave the way through my death, burial, and resurrection and prepare a place for you to be in my Father's house in heaven. You're going to be there. I'm preparing away many rooms. I got you covered. There's plenty of space for you. Now Jesus takes those words. If you love me, you'll keep my word. My Father will love him. There's communion, there's unity, and we will come to him where? Now. And make our home with him. A little heaven now. It's not just dying and go to heaven, it's heaven coming to us. That's what he's saying. So when we say, you know what, when you die, you go to heaven, well, that's, you know, and then someday new heaven, new earth, well, that's, that's kind of half true, really. Heaven is also the state in which you live when God comes to you in the present. Someday you will go to heaven, your home, but when you have your eyes opened and you come to love Jesus, you see his glory, his beauty in the gospel, his death, burial, and resurrection, heaven and your home has come to you. I will make my home with you. So God the Father and God the Son are with you. God the Spirit is in you. And that heaven begins the moment that you're in right relationship with God. The unity and community and dwelling with our God. Revelations will talk about you will now dwell among us. A little bit of heaven right now. Now again, look at verse 23 with me. How does all this unity and union take place? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. You see that in verse 23, verse 24. Whoever does not love me and does not keep my words, that you hear, uh, does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Now, now listen, listen carefully. If we, if we claim, if we claim to know him and to love him and been born anew of him and follow him, and, and he is what? Walking in obedience to the Father we discover this intimacy, this union becomes alive, becomes real, and becomes 
intimate when we are walking with him. So, so, so I, it is our love for God and in our obedience that discovers intimacy with Jesus. Amos says, how can two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? If we claim to be in union with Christ and he is obedient to the Father, how can we walk in a different way and still walk in unity with Christ? My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now, I want to be really clear. No one listens and obeys the voice of Christ every moment of every day. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you have been born again by the Spirit of God, and union has happened with God, we will love Him. And we will, we will not only love Him, but what we need to do is press in the love of God in the gospel so that when we see and manifest, Jesus is manifested to us, and, and, we, and we taste and see that the Lord is good, and we're continually preaching the gospel that I'm so desperately sinful, wicked, and rebellious that Christ had to die, but I'm loved and valued and accepted that he was glad to die, and we press that in, the love of God will begin and, and flourish within us, and the only really response to that is coming to the place over and over and over again of seeing and serving and savoring and worshiping Jesus. Do you see that? It's not earning your salvation, it's because of your salvation. And we respond. I love you. You're a good dad. Why would I not? Why would I not? That's the union with Christ. I didn't have that up, I apologize. Now look at the peace. We'll end in verse 27. Peace I leave you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The word peace is the, is the counterpart to the word shalom in the Hebrew. It, it spoke about the shalom of God in a new messianic kingdom. But Jesus is saying here, it will come now. It will come to you now. Back in that day in the Roman Empire, they achieved what, uh, achieved what was called the Pax Romana. This, this Roman peace secured by force, obtained and maintained by military might. Jesus is saying, that, that's not the peace I'm giving you. Not the world peace. Nothing this world can offer you. The peace I give you is me. Myself, I'm your gift. I will calm your troubled hearts and ease your fears. It is the peace that Paul will write which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. He says on the night before his execution, he, he's talking about peace. He's talking about peace with God. Verse 29, let me get that back up. Verse 29, yeah. We'll go back one slide. Can you go back one slide? Um, he's talking about that peace. Now, we could talk a lot about the peace of God. I can go all over the scripture and talk about the peace with God, the peace of God, and all that. But I, I want to stay right here in this text, okay, with the peace of God. I want to stay right here in this text because he says in verse 27, go back one more, please, Joe. Thank you, sir. Peace I leave you, my peace I will give to you, not the world. Don't let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Okay, got that. You heard I am going away and I will come to you. Well, how's that going to be peaceful and, and tr not trouble my hearts? If you love me, you're obviously not doing a great job right now. You would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. What does that mean? How does the peace and joy and rejoicing that comes to a Christian's heart that, that, that ceases fears because he's going away? Well, let me give it to you. Number one. Paul said, love seeks not its own. 
What Jesus is saying is you would rejoice knowing that I'm going home. Man, I'm going back to the place of glory. I, 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 I've humbled myself. I came down. I lived among the bunch of hard-headed, sinful people, loving them to the very end. I'm going home. I know the cross is before me. I know what's endured ahead of me. But I know that Friday ends, Sunday's coming. And someday I'll ascend. And I'm going home. Don't be so narrow. I am going home. Rejoice in the fact that I'm going home. I've conquered sin. I've conquered death. I've conquered hell. And in obedience to the Father's plan of salvation, I'm going home. Hebrew 12 tells us, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated where? At the right hand of God, in the throne of God. He's home. Rejoice in that. Stop only being centered on your worries and concerns right now. Number two, his glory, his return to glory, his, his bringing peace, his abolishing fear and bringing joy is because the Father's plan will not be thwarted and his departure, I'm going home, is our guarantee that he will send his spirit and he will take residence with us forever. Rejoice in that. Let that calm your fears because where I'm going, the Father is greater than I. You see that? The Father is greater than I. In other words, the Father has got this. Let your hearts not be troubled. Fear not. Now, we have to talk about this for a minute. Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons who are teaching heretical teaching and devaluing the nature of Christ use this verse and they say, you see, the Father is greater than I. Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal with God. There are two gods, one big God, one little God. Okay, that's what they'll tell you. So follow me quickly here. You can't come to a conclusion on one verse and not look at the 13 chapters we just covered. Let me give you a jet tour. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 5, verse 18, Jews accused Jesus of making himself equal with God, and not only did he not correct them, he pushed them even further than that. In John 8.58, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, eternally existing. They picked up stones, knew exactly what he was saying. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 14, 9. Philip, really? I've been here a long time. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 20, 28. Thomas sees the Savior, the risen King, and he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct him. In fact, commends him for his faith. So this cannot mean that Jesus is not one and equal in essence with the Father. It can't because Jesus blasted that wide open. So what does it mean? It's not ontological. It's not essence. It's rather the functional subordinate role that Jesus took on in his humanity, in submission to the Father. Very simply, there are many people in this room who have leadership or do things, whether wherever that is, that people are greater than you. You're getting up Monday morning, you're going to work because your boss tells you about to be there. And if you work on your own, you're paying taxes because the government says you need to. If you're a boss or if you are a, excuse me, a teacher, um, or, uh, you are, uh, 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 you work in some sort of factory, whatever it is, there are people that are over you. If you have children, your eight-year-old, you're greater than your eight-year-old, greater in wealth, greater in authority, 
greater influence and greater strength that you could you know, do what you got to do to get that little boy to submit. You're greater in authority. What Jesus is talking about is rank and position of a president and a vice president. The president is greater than the vice president. There are a lot of people that are much greater than I in intellect and, and finances, but when it comes to essence, your child is of the same value and essence as you. They are not greater than you. You are not greater than them. Your boss may have all the money in the world, but he's not greater than you in essence and in nature. And what Jesus is talking about, he is one in nature with the Father, but greater in the sense of subordinate role to the Father. We see it all throughout Scripture. I do what the Father shows me. I say what the Father says. So the authority is uh, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal, co-equal, co-eternal, yet at the same time, the Son in his role, submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son in order to carry out the divine plan. That's why I mentioned last week, and I'm throwing this out there, we've got a few more minutes here, the shack is not teaching you about the Trinity. I'm going to, everyone's weak maybe, I will see. But anyway, let me just say, Papa, the Father, says, we have no concept of final authority among us, only unity. And Jesus tells Mac in the shack, Papa is much submitted to me as I am of him, or Sahariyahu, which is the spirit, or Papa to her. Submission is not about authority. Not true. Jesus submitted to the Father. Nowhere in Scripture that it says the Father submitted to the Son. It's the opposite. He says, and it's not about obedience anyway. Okay, read your Bible. It's all about relationships of love and respect. Okay, in fact, we are submitted to you in the same way. No. God does not submit to you the same way. You are not God. Be very careful. Be very careful. All three members of the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal, distinguished from one another. My peace I leave you. I'm going back. I'm going to the Father's side. Don't be afraid. Rejoice. My ascension and my return means the work of Christ has been finished. Uh, salvation and redemption has been completed. You will be with me forever. Rejoice. Cast out your fears. And lastly, number three, his departure is cause for rejoicing that grants us peace. It's the antidote of fear because the ascension of Christ, I'm going back to the Father, means we have a permanent presence of God. Jesus is home. He ascended to heaven. His sacrifice has been accepted. And now the Holy Spirit comes who will be with us forever. No matter the pain, the depths, the struggles you may face, he says, I will always be with you. Rejoice. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't fear. Rejoice. When I go, I will send the Spirit. He will have a permanent presence with you. I will be permanently present with you. And I will have a permanent, you will have a permanent propitiation. In other words, the presence of God, Jesus in the Father's place back in glory means just what John said. We have an advocate, John 2.1, 1 John 2.1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate, same word, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the propitiation. He's the wrath-absorbing sacrifice on our behalf. So family, listen. Jesus Christ ascends. I'm going to the Father. Rejoice. 
Rejoice for me, I'm going home. Rejoice in the fact that when I'm home, the work will be completed. Rejoice in the fact that when I'm home, I will send the Spirit. You have my permanent residency within you by the Spirit. And I will be on the Father's throne. When you sin, I will be your advocate. I will lay out the portfolio on the Father's bench in the cosmic courtroom and say, I died for that sin of Lou. I died for that sin of Lou. I died for that sin of Lou. All his sin, past, present, and future, has been forgiven. No more fear. We'll end on 1 John 4. Same author. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let me tell you, family, as we end. God loves you so much that he took your punishment. You have nothing to fear. Terry mentioned about having fear of God more than fear of man. It's about being devoted, raptured in his love and grace and mercy so much that we will walk with him and talk with him and we will love him and we will build our life around him. He's the Savior who died for you. Verse 29. We don't have time for that. It's okay. We'll end right here. Let's respond in this way. What are you afraid for this morning? What are you afraid for this morning? What's troubling your heart that the perfect love needs to cast out? The love of the gospel needs to cast out? What, what are you chasing after? What are you loving? Are, are, are you saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but I really don't have love of him in my heart? Repent of your sins. That means turn from your sins and believe on him. He'll give you the gift of the Spirit. Because you don't know him if you don't love him. Not perfectly. Please don't get that wrong. But if you have no love for God, no love for Christ, no love for his word, no love for him in wanting as children to respond in love, something's missing. I'd love to talk to you after that service. But let's respond with these next two songs as the band comes up. Everybody just stay put. Let's sing together as a family and worship him. Dispel our fears. Ask him to come into your life and ask him to come in in a way that you would see him in his glory and love him and respond in obedience, okay? Let's do that together. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your grace toward us. Lord, we want to hear the voice. We want to hear the voice of the good shepherd. We want to follow him. We want to respond in obedience, Lord, but we want to do it out of the love that you have for us. All that you have done for us in the gospel, Lord, help us to love you with that kind of love, that selfless love that says, Christ loved me first. And now, out of heart of gratitude and thanksgiving, we will love you. Help that to cast all fears away, that our punishment has been borne by Christ on the cross. Spirit of God, please come open our hearts and minds to see the beauty and glory of Christ.